Okay, if you say it's so, then it must be so. And here we are today. Let's see, November the 28th, 2021, lecture discussion number 156. Before I get going on number 156, uh, oh, I should say on the book of Joel, Daniel, uh, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Before I, I get into the text, uh, really, I, I just, I'm fascinated, as you folks know, most of you are by, for example, now we have this new variant out of South Africa called the B.1 or B.1.1.529. And all that is is the genetic lineage uh, that takes it back to the Wuhan 2019, December 2019 strain. And they that's what the, the B is instead of the A lineage, it's the B lineage. And what they're what they're worried about, of course, is. Uh, infectivity and immune escape because they see an unprecedented uh, mutation in the spike protein gene on this particular variant. And I'm interested in this because I keep wondering when will we know that the age of the Gentiles has come to an end? When we know that, that changes so many things. And this pandemic, this worldwide epidemic, if you wish to think of it that way, pestilence, disease, use whatever word you want. This is an extraordinary sign, as you're aware, in Scripture. So uh, that's why I'm interested. I, I want to know uh, if I am seeing something incredible. And uh, obviously, I hope I am for all kinds of reasons. And now I want to I want to reference some one. I'm getting wonderful letters. Uh, obviously, I, I lost my my angel, uh, my beloved uh, Abigail. Um, and so, so many of you, uh, Mary Ann from Arkansas sent me a, a synopsis. Let me see. It's incredible. It's in, so impressive. Mary Ann is just uh, amazing what she wrote. Uh, and basically what it is is just her, her interpretation of the immortality of animals. Some of it is uh, original material. Some of it is things that I have contributed but it's just amazing. And, and Marianne, I haven't had time to, to write you back. Whoops, I'm starting to bleed over there. But I still uh, nonetheless wanted to mention that. And uh, Daniel from Texas, Dimebach, Texas, um, he sent a, uh, a little thing that's in memoriam of Abigail. We really appreciated that. Daniel, that was so cool. And, and now I have Patty from Missouri. And she says, uh, our hope in resurrection of Christ, our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. Lost my old girl Lucy this past August. May she frolic with Abigail in the eternal pastures of our great Lord, Patty uh, from Missouri. And that's really, really cool as well. So appreciate all of those that uh, have uh, written to us. Uh, uh, and uh, just very valuable things. Okay. I realize fully now, fully, where I'm, uh, uh, that my lectures are incohesive. Uh, I know that, and I try to say that and say that as often as it is warranted, and I should have to do it every lecture. I should start every lecture with, I realize fully that my lectures are incohesive. I know it, and I want to say it. Long ago, though, uh, we sat down, me and Bill the Fast, and, uh, primarily, and we said, what are we going to do that's different? There's all kinds of, there's guys that are a lot better than I am. They're more dynamic. They're obviously younger, much better looking, uh, dress nicer, all of that stuff. So I can't compete with them, and I never intended to. We thought that at the least our purpose was to present as many questions and as many subjects as possible as we went through the Bible. Leave nothing behind as much as that is possible. And it's not possible. It's impossible. But to try to do that in, in every single lecture. And and I got a, a question from Kathleen last week on the Nephilim and the Nephilim question. And that was alongside. That's why I placed it alongside of uh, Anna's invisibility of the soul question, because the two fit together. That was in lecture number 155. Both intermingled with the satanic hedge accusation that we covered last week from Job chapter one and the Ezekiel 47 river of living water. They're, all of that, that's why I wanted to put them together, because those are subjects that fit. And Kathleen was concerned about the mortogenic origin in animals and Nephilim. Now, she didn't mention animals. I'm going to help her along here. She probably understood it. But how did the animals end up with death by entropy? Sorry. Death by, by entropic means. In other words, decay. So, 
and the unnamed Anna, Anna, the invisibility of the souls of animals and humans uh, at death was her issue. So I hope you can see that the, Kathleen and Anna do fit together here. And lecture 154 had the meanings of the two Gog, Magog, Ezekiel 38, and Revelation 20. So I have two Gog, Magogs. One Ezekiel 38, the other Revelation 20. And to frame it in question form, why is there two of these things, these two of these assaults? Why does a massive army formed to attack Israel and Jerusalem, the confederacy from the north prior to the tribulation, then Satan replicates this at Revelation 20. After he must, and i got to put that on the board, he must, absolutely must, be released. What is up with that? Why? He must be released from his thousand-year imprisonment in the, in the abyss, Revelation 22 through 3. That can't be a coincidence that Satan is using the exact same formula that was used uh, at Ezekiel 38, at Revelation 20. And, and th- there are no coincidental elements in Scripture. There's none in the Bible. No, nothing is coincidence. God's omniscient excludes happenstance. Luck is incompatible with infinity, omniscience, and timelessness, as you all know. You can't have luck. You can't have any coincidence. So the very the fact that I have Ezekiel 38, Revelation 20, and they are essentially almost identical, not necessarily in scope, but certainly in process. Therefore, the the actual questions then are: Why does Satan reinstitute the Ezekiel 38 transcript, the, the template? He just does it again. Well. The answer, obviously, is that Satan found the original to be a considerable, if not unqualified, success. This is a success. The massacre of that confederacy by God was a success. It far exceeded Satan's expectations. In other words, if it ain't broke, run it, run it again. Now we, if we have the same, we have the same hindsight that Satan possesses. We both can read Ezekiel 38 through 39, Revelation 27 through 10. We can read it. We can see the two attempts to destroy Israel and Jerusalem as unmitigated disasters. That's what we do. We see that as, no, this is failure. Complete and total failure, which does what? That makes us what? Wrong. We're wrong. Because you can say it with me, wrong. That's not what Satan is thinking. Recognizing that Satan has a polar opposite assessment from what we would consider the rational conclusion is is great value to us. We need to know. I shouldn't say that. I always say that. We need to know. You should know that Satan saw the Ezekiel 38 slaughter of his army to be a celebrated victory. That was his intent, is to get that army slaughtered. In other words, Satan celebrates death. He is a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. And he wanted everyone in that army to be murdered, just as he wants everybody in the end of the age, prior to the great white throne, invasion of Jerusalem, to be slaughtered. Just as the Antichrist wanted the battle of Armageddon to be a slaughter. Everyone that has wisdom, in my opinion, maintains the, uh, the understanding that John 8, 44, uh, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. That's got to be at the forefront whenever you're confronting Satan or the Antichrist or the false prophet's motives and behaviors. And understand that the whole point, most of the time, overwhelmingly, is to create as much murder as is possible. And that's something I, I, that I explained, I think, very in the very beginning of my so-called uh, religious career here. Another example, Revelation 9, it exhibits this comprehensively. The star fallen, that Satan is given the key to the abyss, and the demonic hordes are released, and what do they do? They torment and they kill. One third of all humanity is murdered by those demonic hordes. They've been waiting thousands of years to come out and finally kill everybody that they can. And remember, I I hope you remember the 150 days of no death. Death is suspended for 150 days. That only allows them to torment. As soon as that is lifted, here comes death. 
And also Revelation 21 describes an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold, he grabbed the dragon, that's Satan, he grabbed the dragon and bound Satan for 1,000 years. 1,000 years. Now that 1,000 is a day. God calls that one day. Thousand years. Learn one thing, Steve. It says in the Bible, okay, it doesn't just say Steve. But learn one thing. Day is a thousand years, thousand years is a day. Know that. So I have an angel, it says, coming down from heaven. This angel has the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon and he bound Satan for 1,000 years. And obviously, to me at least, the angel is not an angel. It is the angel of the Lord. That is Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 1.18, Revelation 3.7, Revelation 9.1. He has the keys. He's also fully capable of grabbing Satan by the tongue and dragging him around. Whoever this angel is, he has the ability to grab Satan and change, chain him and bind him. Excuse me. <coughs> In light of Jude 9 and Matthew 4.10, it's apparent that Christ himself is the one that chains Satan. You just look at those two. Revelation 20.10 also provides evidence that the Lord God Almighty is the one who casts Satan into the lake of fire. He's the judge, 5.22, John. He's the judge. And that also is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. When he throws Satan into the lake of fire, he is fulfilling Genesis 3. But we still haven't determined why. We haven't dealt with why Satan must be released. When I say we, I mean me. As you should know, I hope you know, it is possible that Satan was not alone in the abyss when he is put in there. We all assume that he is by himself. So Satan is cast in there. Now, he's certainly cast in there singularly, but the question remains is, is there anyone else in the abyss when he is? And there's merit to the position that he's not alone. Both positions have merit. Those being that Satan is in isolation and Satan is in the presence of his un, uh, unfaithful, in the presence of a fallen army of, of demons or, or angels, if you will. And they also are going to be released at the conclusion of the 1,000 years. Is that position? That position says that. So he's not going in there by himself and he's not coming out by himself. In other words, there are people that are angels in there that have been fallen or imprisoned. He goes in by himself, but they are there with him, and they all come out. The latter, and that replicates Revelation nine, if that happens. And that, of course, would give great energy to the men who hate God at that point, right? Here comes this fantastic demonic army. Satan brings this wonderful army and convinces us with all these powerful angels. And that's just an angel. Christ is just an angel. He's a created being like us. And look at all this powerful angel that I have here, all these demons. We can kill him. Come with us. We're going to kill him. That might provide some kind of evidentiary aspect to the whole thing, how he is able to deceive them. Because he does deceive them into thinking that he can kill life itself, which is, of course, a, a contra contradiction. It's a, so the, the latter high, the fact that he's not in there by himself and he is released with all of them, uh, that results, that hypothesis results in many interesting lines of implications, which should, we should investigate, but not today. Just wanted to throw it out because, again, I don't want to leave anything behind as much as I can. That has been my promise from the beginning uh, that that's what I would attempt to do. That's why it takes so long to write these things. It takes so long to give them. Everyone is already asleep, but that's okay. Let me repeat the preeminent question. Why must Jesus Christ, the Creator God, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, John 1, 1 through 4, why must He release Satan after 1,000 years? He has to do it. It's must. Christ must release Satan. He must chain and imprison Satan. Those two will go together. He has to imprison him and he has to release him. And so that's the preeminent question, I believe, in this particular area. The most efficient approach to this question, in my most humble of my humblest opinions, is to assess the significance of the order of the process. Why are they musts? Why are they uh, both are musts? Why are they musts? Does that make any sense? Must imprison, 
must chain. What's the chain for? Got to chain him and throw him in there. If there are other angels down there, other demons down there, what's going on? And then he must release him. What I mean by that, I'm going to repeat it. Satan must be chained before the 1,000 years, and, and Satan must be released after the 1,000 years has elapsed. Why must the length of Satan's incarceration here correspond to the duration of the seventh day? It is the same length of time as a, as a day. He's got to be imprisoned for one day. Why not two days? Just one day. It has to correspond to the, to the duration of the seventh day millennial reign of Christ. One day, the seventh day. Why? That ultimately has to be resolved. And I have brought this subject up previously. When I have done it, the aspect of Satan's culpability is centermost. In other words, I always talk about his culpability. I always talk about what can be assigned to him. In other words, Satan cannot be assigned responsibility or blame for any sinful act during this 1,000-year period. So if there's any sin in the millennium, whose fault is it? It is not the fault of the angelic realm. It is only the fault of humanity. For all those who believe with Christ on the throne and incredible peace in the animal kingdom and in humanity, nobody will kill and maim and hate each other. Isn't true. At the end of the thousand years, we have an, another war. An incredible war. The question becomes, is uh, how long have those people that fight against Christ have hated Christ? And why do they hate him? Why do they want him dead? Why do they want some other system of governance other than God himself? So there, there, there's no responsibility or assignment of blame for any sinful act during or sinful thought during this 1,000 year period. In other words, the flip, uh, what was his name? Come on. I thought I had it there. Flip Wilson, am I right about that? I, I, I'm going back to the 1960s. Uh, the devil made me do it. Remember that routine? Okay. And that, the, the church is famous for saying that. The devil, the devil made me do that. The devil, I had a fight with the devil today. Me and Satan, we went after it today. Well, you're an idiot. Satan is not interested in your puny little self or your puny little church, even if you have a, what you think is a large church. He's not bothering you. He's busy. You're insignificant. Quit it. That's their way of grandi grandiose uh, application to themselves. I am so important, they say, that Satan himself has to come and do battle with me. Bull. I had to carefully correct myself there. But that devil made me do it excuse again is eliminated by Jesus Christ chaining Satan, his great chain that has bound Satan for a thousand years. Now that is part of this, but there's always more. There's always more. Now again, back to what I decided to do many, many years ago. Find the always more. Don't settle for the surface. Keep looking. <clears throat> Obviously here, God himself is making a point. Christ is making a point with the chain and, and, and the imprisonment and the length of time. Yea, a point. And I submit that this immobilization, this restrictive confinement of Satan relates back to Job 1, 9 through 11. So we're right back here. Job 1, 9 through 11. This incredible accusation that Satan makes towards God. Not incredible. This uh, Actually, this reckless and wicked accusation. Job 1, 9 through 11 tells us what Satan says in front of the angelic host that is all gathered. His accusation is essentially that Job reveres and worships God only because God has placed a hedge around Job. That's the only reason he's doing it, is what Satan says, in front of the entire angelic host that can't be counted. And therefore, by putting this hedge around Job, God is interfering with Job's free will. Satan's premise effectively is that choosing obedience and allegiance to God is conditional on God's blessings and protection, his hedge. And that's what he says. And if you remove these, the blessings, protection, and the, the hedge, if you will, that, that's included in both of those, removing the hedge will uh, reveal the fragility of Job's faith, or any of all mankind's faith. If there's no hedge, there's no faith. 
If you want to think of it, it's a contingency then. The contingency of all of mankind's belief and faith is, is, uh, set upon this hedge, this blessing and provision, uh, pr- protection. And the ultimate result of Satan's accusation is that only wickedness will, re- will exhibit free will. And you've heard me say that before. Wickedness and free will are inseparable. That's his position. There cannot be any goodness attached to free will. Only wickedness. The ultimate result, again, is that all of man that are like Job are contaminated then by God's hedge. You remove the hedge and the suppressed true will of mankind will be exposed. Because God says, have you considered my servant Job? He's what? What does he say? He's good. And Satan says, no, he's not. He's only good because you protect him and bless him. Take, get rid of the hedge and you'll find out he's evil. He will curse you to, to your face. That's what he says, right? Remember all of that from last week? Remove the hedge and the suppressed true will of mankind will be exposed. And that suppressed free will would be hatred. Surely mankind will curse, hate God to God's face. That's Job 1.11, Satan's postulation, if you will, abridged. Now, I hope you all know that since I'm repeating this from Lecture 155. This is Lecture 156. This is what we covered a little bit last week, but I'm bringing it back up, and please don't call me Shirley. Uh, I forgot about that, didn't you? Anyway, hopefully you've noticed that Jesus God, that's Christ, Jesus God, all one word, is utilizing Satan's Job 1, 9 through 11 thesis with the chaining of the serpent of old, Genesis 3.1. So when he is binding and chaining Satan, he is taking us back to this accusation in front of the angelic host at Job 1, 9-11. Obviously, if Satan is withheld, if he is prohibited from access, then the hedge is now placed around who? Who has the hedge? Because Satan says he only reveals, worships you, reveres you because you have built a wall around him. And now who has a wall around them? Satan does. Satan is now in a hedge, isn't he? He's now, the hedge is essentially at, at, uh, at Revelation 20. The hedge is now essentially around the dragon. The dragon is cast into the abyss. A seal is placed over the abyss. And Satan is shut up inside of it. He can't get out and there has absolutely no influence whatsoever. So he has a protective hedge. Now the protection is not for his sake. It is for those who are outside of the hedge. So they just move the hedge from Job and put the hedge, sorry, excuse me, and put the hedge around Satan. Can't say that enough. It will be impossible for Satan to deceive any of mankind. For 1,000 years Christ will make it impossible. Now, remember that Satan was given permission to penetrate the hedge around Job, right? So again, why must this be done? I have two musts. He must be chained. He must be in prison for a thousand years. Why? Well, also note that which is immediately subsequent uh, to the chaining I'm sorry, to the, uh, uh, the final battle, the final Magog-Gog battle. Uh, and do I say that? I hope I do. I don't. I should say it now. I left it out, obviously. But note that, that right after the final war of Satan, if you will, this final battle that he brings this huge army, and it may include the demonic horde again, it would be a, rep- a replication of Revelation 9 combined with Ezekiel 38 and combined with the battle arm again. All of those elements are going to be here. So at the, we have the great white throne judgment. The judgment is of the, the second death judgment. Those who are assigned second death is not until after that war and the casting of Satan into the lake of fire. So why is the great white throne judgment placed at the conclusion of the second Gog-Magog war. How are those two events connected? I have this incredible war 
And then I have that judgment immediately after. Obviously, the judgment, the great white throne, is reflecting back on that last second war, if you will, the last war of all time. So the final war, the final battle, is connected to the great white throne judgment. How are those two events connected? So we have this order. The beast and the false prophet are killed. Remember that, right? They're sent to hell. They're resurrected out of hell. And they're the first fruits of those who are cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 19, 20. So why are they the first? How come there should be other guys that are available? How come he didn't get a whole bunch of them and throw them all in at once? But he doesn't. Only ones that go in after the coming of Christ to protect and save Jerusalem and establish his millennial reign. The only ones put in the lake of fire are the false prophet and the Antichrist. And they first, however, he sends them to hell and then he brings them out. So he, why does he send them to hell? And I covered that a little bit last week. He obviously is sending them there for somebody to see him, see them, sorry. Who is seeing them? Who's talking to them? And there are scriptures that relate to that. You can find them very easily if you start looking around. After all of that, after they are resurrected out of hell and then the first fruits of those who are cast into the lake of fire, then the birds that fly in the midst of heaven were called by the one with a great loud voice to come to the supper of the great God. So they come to the Lord's Supper. There you go. I have the birds. They're in the midst of heaven. And I can make the case very easily when you go back to Revelation 8. You will see that angels are in the midst of heaven. That's who's in the midst of heaven. Now I have birds with angels in the midst of heaven. And of course, I asked the question a while back. How did those birds get there? When did they get there? But they're flying in the midst of heaven and they're called by God and they go down and do what? They devour the bodies of every one of those army. Uh, everyone that fought in the battle on the side of the Antichrist. And so again, the mist of heaven is consistent with Revelation 8.13, where the mist of heaven, guess what it is? It's the mist of heaven. It's not It's not a, a, a little bit above the earth. It's not in the, uh, the lower atmospheric area of the earth. And these birds eat the bodies of the men who were in the Antichrist's army. I suspect that men is generic there because I suspect that women are also in that army. Why is there a supper of the great God? What is the meaning of that? The purpose, again, the Lord's Supper, the God's Supper. Why does he, he obviously is connecting this to something. What is it? Why is it just birds here? Well, is there anybody else eating these bodies? But he specifically mentions birds. How, how come? And so I have this sequential event. Uh, so, uh, that comes after that next after the birds are eating is the chaining and binding and sealing for 1000 years or what I call the first must. Satan must be sealed and chained and then he must be released. That's the second must. So I got two must, 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 must one, must one and must two. Now people will say, well, it doesn't say that there are two musts. Well, I think it's obvious. How do I, I, I think the, the first and second musts are both obvious. We know that he must be released. He, in order to be released, what, what do we have to have happen? He has to be caught. He has to be in prison. So he must be imprisoned in order to must be released. So two musts. One's inferred. Then, after he's released, the nations are deceived and they gather from all the four corners of the earth. They number as the sand of the sea. There's so many of them. They're uncountable and fire from Christ in heaven. And as we talked about last week, Christ has the ability. He's the one that made the sun, so he understands thermonuclear fusion. And that thermonuclear fire, the fire of the sun, comes down and devours the army. And it, it melts their faces. And you can t see immediately why I think it's a thermonuclear system. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, joining the Antichrist and the false prophet. And they will be tormented. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 10, day and night forever. Isn't that interesting? What's so interesting about that? Say it again. Day is fantastic. Give her a, a, a cookie. 
That's wonderful. Day and night. The Greek is the Greek word himerus. Himerus. Niktos. Day and night. So the question, is there day and night in the lake of fire of utter darkness? How does one reconcile utter darkness with day? And perhaps you've heard me say in past lectures that utter darkness is a photon-less environment. There's not a single photon there. There's not a single photon of light in the lake of fire. Without light, I'll, just a second, without light, there is blindness groping, Genesis 19.11. If there's no light, you can't see. There's no possibility you can see. You have no light for, from which to reflect anything. So you can't see, you're blind. Utter darkness means you're blind. Even though your eyes are functional, there's no light for them to, to cause any sight. No information is coming in because of the utter darkness. Imagine that, would you? Now go ahead. What's your question? Well, let me see if I can make a, a position that you'll accept. Okay. That's not easy. No. No, not for you. <laughs> because it's my job, I know what you're thinking um, out there. Uh, Terry's already thinking it. Hey, Mr. Highly Trained Religionist Professional. I can barely say that. Hey, Mr. Highly Trained Religious Professional. Doesn't fire, by definition, emit photons of light? That's what you're going to say. Uh, I, I've had this said to me. Hey, highly trained idiot, haven't you ever heard of torches? Didn't they chase Frankenstein down with torches? How can the lake of fire be utterly dark? The long answer to all those questions is what? Yes, that's right. Yes, the long answer is yes. The flames of fire, as you know, because you went to eighth grade, those are the visible results of combustion, oxygen and fuel. So I have to have combustion to have flame. The lake of fire is not going to consume those who are cast in it. Note Revelation 20.10 reveals that the light, I'm sorry, reveals that after the 1,000 year millennial reign of Christ, the Antichrist and the false prophet are still in the lake of fire. So they were not consumed. Unconsumed. No combustion. Without combustion, what don't I have? That's right. Photons. So there's no photons because there's no combustion. The fire of the, of the lake of fire is black. Because there's utter darkness. It's black fire. That's how he does it. But wait, HTRP, someone screams from the back row. What about day and night? Day infers daylight. How do I keep track of days and nights if I don't have any light? And I could interject two things here. First, in Cliffside, uh, we only have one row. So, I mean, that's all we got. <laughs> Thus, the back row and the front row are the same row. Rut row. Yeah. I worked hard on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad the front row, back row thought that was funny. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's my first point. Second point is it's wintertime in Alaska. And that's, I can barely say it. What is it? Utkiavik, which we used to call barrel. Utkiavik, Kiavik. Okay, we're this is winter time in Alaska. That means we don't have any daylight. Very little daylight. Very little. <coughs> Excuse me. In Utkiavik, they have no daylight for 65 days. I think that's already started for them. They they don't see the sun for 65, 70 days or so. Happens every year. The point being, a point is that we Alaskans we're experts at darkness. We know darkness better than anybody. We're fantastic at it. Our winter days are dark and cold days, where in the Lake of Fire they are dark and hot. Winter daytime in Utkiavik is darkness. 
when they're in the, in the day, it's pitch black. There is no sun again for 70 days, or 65 at least. And there will, there will be days in the new city of Jerusalem. He says so. In fact, he said there will be no night in the new city of Jerusalem. Only light in the city of the living God. And as you are aware, night has this relationship with death and sin. Darkness also is a symbol for evil. So the darkness, the evil, is all in the lake of fire, and it's all utter darkness. So it's obvious that the city of the Lord God, the city of the Lord God, would not have any darkness in it at all. Revelation 22.4, there's no darkness there. There is only light. Which is why the lake of fire has only darkness. So I'm making it obvious here. One has only light, the other has only darkness. That's how it works. One has the day. The other has the night. Day and night. Because there was a city of Jerusalem and there's a lake of fire. Therefore, Revelation 20.10 refers to the day of the new city of the new earth and the night of the lake of fire. The day of the New Jerusalem is eternal and the darkness of the lake of fire, also eternal. And that tells you that the day being separated from the night is a fulfillment of Genesis 1, 3 through 5, right? Where he says, I'm going to separate the light from the darkness. Well, he does that. The darkness is in the lake of fire and the light is in the new city of Jerusalem. So that, uh, Revelation 20.10, is a fulfillment of Genesis 1.3-5. In case you were wondering about that, Genesis 1.3-5 is a prophecy fulfilled in Revelation 22.4. So, that's how they fit together. Remember, I have said many times, what you find in Genesis, you will find in Revelation. Keep in mind that they wanted to throw out the book of Revelation. They didn't, Martin Luther, I believe, wanted to cast it out. He couldn't figure out how it worked. Anyway, again, we only have one row. But, 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 says the the front back row. What about Psalm 148.3, 148.6? That's it says, the sun and the moon are praising God and he establishes them forever and ever. What about that? Highly trained idiot. What about Psalm 148.3-6? Answer me that dude. I haven't heard that in a long, long time. I thought I'd resurrect it. Throw in Daniel 12, 3, they will contest me. The stars are forever and ever. Wait a minute, I thought the stars fell all disappeared. But now they're forever and ever. The premise is that Revelation 21, 20 through, through 27, and Revelation 22, 1 through 5 are in conflict with Psalm 148, 3 through 6, and Daniel 12 through 3, or 12, 3. They're not. If you think you have found a conflict in the Bible, what are you? wrong. Just And listen, I've read books 700 contradictions in the Bible, 300 contradictions in the Bible. But they can't see the Bible. They don't understand the Bible. The Bible requires the Holy Spirit. They don't have it. And they're all always wrong. Well, let's take on Daniel 12, 3 and Psalm 148, 3 through 6 and see if in fact they are in conflict with uh, 21... 22 through 27 of Revelation and 22, 1 through 5 of Revelation. Chapter 22, chapter 21. So firstly, and yes, there's a, there is a firstly. And there's a secondly. And so there's got to be a firstly, right? If we have a secondly, i got to have a firstly. And there's got to be a thirdly and a fourthly and a fifthly. Obviously, if I add Lee, L-Y, to a number, it makes a word every time. Pretty much the same as Ness. So numberness is a word, right? Numberness is the suffixing of li to numbers. Is, suffix, is suffixly, I'm sorry, I can barely mean suffixly, yes, suffixing is a present participle. It actually is there. So say, you can say all that you want. Anyway, firstly, the sun and the moon are not in the New Jerusalem. It says so. Where are they? They're in the, they are aside, if you will, alongside. They are in the earth, the new earth, in the sense that they reflect on the new earth. Now, everybody says, well, the moon will reflect the sun when it's dark. Well, this is the new earth. You have to set aside your concepts of this earth and figure out what is he going to do? Why does he have a moon? 
What does the moon do besides reflect light? It has many roles. It has a gravitational impact, for one. The resurrected earth has a resurrected sun and a resurrected moon. Notice what I said there. What word did I use? Resurrected. And I. what about the resurrected heavens and the... Because uh, uh, I have those. I have the new heaven as opposed to the original heaven. And what does it say about the original heaven and the original earth in Revelation 21.1? What, what does it say about them? It passes away. What's passes away? If I said to you, someone has passed away, what would you say? They have, they have, yes, that's right. And so I'm using the word resurrected, aren't I? And I think appropriate so. The, to repeat, Revelation 21.1, the first heaven and the first earth passes away. I'm saying dies. First heaven and the first earth die. What does God do? He resurrects it. He makes a new heaven and a new earth, just like he resurrects me, resurrects Abigail, resurrects you, and he makes a new you and a new me. But we're resurrected. He does not destroy anything. He doesn't annihilate. He's meticulous. That's right. The first heaven and the first earth pass away, die, and then they are resurrected, restored, renewed, changed. 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 54. By Christ, he does it. Why does he do it? Because he's the resurrector. He's the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me, John 11.25? That's what he says. Do you understand that what I do? Jesus is the one that resurrects everything. I asked a while back, a couple of weeks. He says, how much, how much resurrecting will he do? What is the magnitude, the scope of his resurrecting? How much bigger and amazing is the resurrecting of the resurrector? How much resurrecting is he going to do? Chad, who is not from Florida. Hi, Chad, who is not from Florida. Uh, hopefully he'll laugh at that, and hopefully he'll laugh at that question. How big, how much resurrecting is he doing? Okay? Where was I? Yes, I am intentionally adopting the language of resurrection to the passing away of the first heaven, and the first earth. Remember, the first earth had two Edens, the Ezekiel 28 mineral Eden and the Genesis 1-3 through 131 organic Eden. And both were corrupted. Both were contaminated, one by the fall of Satan, the other by the fall of Adam. The first heaven similarly had the defilement of the fallen angels. So it is contaminated as well, isn't it? Everything. I need a new heaven because that one's going to pass away because it's dying. It'll be dead, and then he will resurrect it. And I need a new earth, because that one will pass away and die, and it needs to be resurrected. I need a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth were in need of restoration. They must pass away and be resurrected, reborn, if you want to think of it that way. Born again, think of it that way. The process is always the same, isn't it? Over and over and over again. He just keeps doing the same thing until what? We finally see what he's talking about. And I've emphasized previously during this series that the time of creation has ended. It ended at the sixth day, Genesis 131. There is no more creation. That speaks to Kathleen's question, doesn't it? The sixth day ended creation. What remains is the time of resurrection. All there is, the resurrection is the only mechanism that God employs now. That's what he's doing. How much power to create, how much power to resurrect? You start figuring that out. Again, can't ask this question enough. Uh, just how big is this? And again, how much resurrecting will he do? And, and again, the fact that resurrection is the only mechanism, that explains Kathleen and the unnamed Anna's question. One of them is asking about the mortogenic aspect. How did the mortogenic issue come into animals in the Nephilim? The other one is saying, why can't we see the soul leave the body of death? Okay, I would advise that you consider a position on how much resurrecting he will do that is in compliance with Psalm 36, 5 through 7 and to Matthew 19, 26 and Luke 1, 37. All things are possible with God. Because why? Because he's omnipotent. 
He's the Almighty, Revelation 19.6. The Almighty, he has all the might, all the power. He's omnipotent. Try not to impose our human limitations on omnipotence. Pro tip number seven. Somewhere in all of that, I answered the hedge accusation issue. Did you catch it? I hope you did, assuming that no one noticed anyway. If humanity, I'll go ahead and answer it point blank here. If humanity was allowed to witness the, li- the living soul leave the body at the death of the body, then the free will decision to believe Jesus Christ, John 11:25, to believe God, to accept the blood of Christ, as a solution to our sins, to grab the hand that's extended, that would be invalidated according to Satan, John 1, Job 1, 9-11. Did that make sense? Said it really fast. If you could see the soul leave, then that's a hedge of protection, is it not? And God allows the hedge of protection. To, he takes it away. Says, Job doesn't need it. Because Job can choose good. I am not conceding that the invalidation, uh, according to Satan, does indeed occur. But I notice that the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God permits the accusation of Satan to be tested. Job 1.12, Job 2.6. Let's put it to the test. You've accused me of this. Let's test it. See if you're right. Job 1.12 and Job 2.6 both begin with what? They begin with one incredible word, both of them. And it is this one. That is what it be, what they begin with. There's something amazing. When he gives you that word, you recognize it. That's God's method of announcing a fantastic, a great truth is about to be revealed. He is going to test the accusation of Satan. And that accusation is everywhere in the Bible. It's called the trail, if you will, of the serpent. Something extraordinary is taking place in Job 1.12 and Job 2.6. And obviously, I submit what follows is the refutation of Satan's premise of Job 1, 9 through 11. Notice that Job endured the deaths of his children and animals and serpent, serpents. Servants. Maybe he had serpents. Probably not. He endured the death of his children, the death of his animals, and the death of his servants. But he would never curse God with his lips, Job 2, 9 through 10. Wouldn't do it. Didn't do it. Job believed God. He believed in the goodness of God, as did Adam, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.14. Neither Job nor Adam were deceived by the accusation of the dragon. However, the sands of the sea will be deceived by, the, by Satan, won't they, at the end of the millennium. And so the deception of Satan was com- completely failed with respect to Job and Adam, thus resulting in Genesis uh, 3.21, or though resulting in Genesis 3.21, animals died because of the, uh, that occurs with Adam. But ultimately, both Job chapter 48 and Adam in Genesis 3.20 come to realize that the resurrection erased the, the accusation. So they recognize it. That's why Adam says she's the mother of the living. The living are the ones that are resurrected to life. Job's entire family, all of his animals, all of his servants, resurrected at Job 48. It's important to know that there is a resurrection to life. And that is the new city of Jerusalem. And that destroys the accusation of Satan. And there's a resurrection to death, the lake of fire. That also destroys the accusation of Satan. Okay, I've got to really move fast now, I hope. If humanity at the death of the body transitions to the intermediate state, and it does, then Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 19, then the same must happen to who? If humanity, we have an intermediate state, and Ecclesiastes 3, 18 and 19 says we're the same as who? The same as the animals. Then the animals have to also do what? Transition to an intermediate state. They have to. It says we're the same. Then the same is said for animals. Both man and animals have the nefesh, rach, shaya, the breath of life, the breath of the spirit of life, the breath of God, Genesis 2, 7, Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 130, 715, 722. We have the same. Again, Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 19. That's the test. To repeat, Genesis 1, 30 is amazing. It's definitive. Every beast, every bird, everything that creeps on the earth in which a living soul, in which is a living soul, inside of which is a living soul. That's what Genesis 1, 30 says. All of those. 
So that causes this question, why colors? That makes sense, doesn't it? Why colors? Why is color assigned to the animals? Because it is. I'm sorry about this. Not really. It's fake sorry. It's intentional fake sorry. Planned fake sorry. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Why colors? Obviously, animals can see colors. They can. I have the dog that knows which red ball is his. The red ball and the green ball look exactly the same, but that's not what he does. I got you there. I see that 10-minute sign. Obviously, animals can see colors. There are animals that see more spectrum than human beings do. Genesis 9.12, colors is connected to consciousness. He connects them at Genesis 9.12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, Noah, and, 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 Every living creature for perpetual generations. That's what he said. Every living creature for perpetual generations. That means all generations. All means all. The sign that God gives to Noah and the animals is color. That's why I said color is connected to consciousness. Because consciousness is connected to the spirit of life. The nefesh, the rahah, the shayah. Genesis 9.16, the Noahic covenant is the everlasting covenant between Noah, mankind, and every living creature of all flesh on the earth. Notice how he says that, all flesh. Every creature, every living creature of all flesh has the same everlasting covenant between God and Noah that he, that their covenants are the same. He gave the covenant to Noah and he gave the covenant to every single living animal of all flesh on the earth. He, and he says it again in Genesis 9.17. I submit that he thinks repeating himself is necessary. Why does he keep repeating himself over and over and over again in Genesis 9? Everlasting covenant with every living creature of mankind and all flesh over and over again. He says it back, back to back. And I think he's, that he's doing it, obviously, because it's the test of Ecclesiastes 3.18. It's this critical, crucial test that you've got to pass. It's the McFly moment, right? McFly. You're not getting it. You don't get it. Obviously, he is emphasizing the everlasting and the ever, every living creature. Because he keeps saying it over and over again. Why would the covenant be eternal? It's an everlasting, infinite covenant because animals are what? Eternal. If they're not eternal, I, don't, I, need, a, I need the Mosaic covenant, which is not eternal. Temporary. But this, this has to be permanent. And it comes after the flood. The immortality of the living creature is being underscored at Genesis 9 after the flood. Why would God do this covenant at that juncture, at this juncture? Because billions of animals were killed in the flood and none of them rejected Christ. Everlasting, therefore, equals resurrection. Does that make sense? That's just basic math. You can't have resurrection without it being everlasting and you can't have everlasting unless it's resurrection and you can't have a resurrection unless you have consciousness. And so and consciousness means you can see color. Okay, moving along even faster. What is the intermediate state like specifically for animals? What's it like? And I keep going back to Numbers 22. Balaam and the donkey. The donkey could see Christ. Balaam could not. Those with Balaam that were with Balaam, they couldn't see Christ either. Only the donkey saw. And that leads to the obvious question. Can animals see the spiritual realm right now? Can they do it? Do they see the angels? Do they hear the angels? Do they hear the voice of God? This is where we get into migration of birds. Why do the birds migrate? Does he tell them to? He's pretty good at keeping time. Do they hear the voice of God? That's a question you have to wrestle with. In other words, what is their compensation? As you know, I try to play chess against computers. And I do pretty good. I'm not great. There's no threat that a 70-year-old is going to be a grandmaster. It's not going to happen. But I, I do pretty good in chess if a piece is sacrificed, the issue becomes one of compensation. If I have lost a piece, the material, did I receive compensation for it? Usually that's going to be in the form of positional development. I should get an improved position. If I'm going to sacrifice a piece, my position should improve. And if it doesn't, then I have failed. 
The other day I played a game against a high-rated computer, very high-rated, I think 1800, and I sacrificed my, uh, my bishop in order to move my king and take out two pawns so that I could attract and get one pawn to the queen line or to the end line and get it and promote to a queen. And it worked. And I beat the evil computer person. Girl, it's a girl, I think. So I won. But that was what I'm saying. I, I sacrificed something of great value, but I got compensation through position. I know, I have to hurry. The animals groan, they suffer. Though of the three kingdoms, I'm repeating this, they did not, have not, will not rebel. They will not ever curse God to his face. They won't do it, but they suffer. They suffer as much or more so than any other kingdom. And they were not involved in this. Obviously, mankind and angels have both cursed God repeatedly. And and mankind and angels will continue to curse God face to face at the great white throne. Those are fallen angels that have and will and won't stop. They will curse God every day of their existence. So will mankind. So when Satan said the words of Job 1.11, he was expressing the current status of his angelic followers and much of mankind. He was saying, hey, take the heads away. You'll be hated. That's free will. The angel hates you. Your angels will hate you. My angels will hate you. That's what he says to God. Few of mankind will find the door that is Christ. Most of mankind will not find the door. It says the, the narrow gate is difficult to find. Matthew 7:14, John 10:9, Genesis 19:11. Very difficult to find the narrow gate and the door that is Christ. Nonetheless, the number that is the few that find the door is uncountable. It's incalculable. The ones that enter the narrow gate, again, incalculable. Revelation 7, 9. So many of them, we can't count them. Only God knows how many there are. And the unsaved number that hate God, they number as the sand, Revelation 28. And that's just as, that's just one example of how many will perish hating God, cursing God. So, huge numbers, but one number is incredibly huge. The number of, as of the sand, it's just one example. We had many, many before that that would not find the gate and would not get find the door and would curse God. We know that the intermediate state for a mankind is one in which they are what? They are recognizable. I'm going to quote Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. He was such an influence in my life. I, I've lost track of him a bit. But uh, he said the immaterial part of man looks like the material part of man. Same appearance, yet no body. And we see that in Scripture. In other words, somehow our spirit maintains our physical form. There is no body. There is not an inter- there's not an intermediate state body. But somehow there's this physical resemblance, recognizable. Uh, 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 it's a re- the, the spirit is rec- a recognizable function. It has rec- recognizable elements to it. But again, there's not an intermediate state body. There's none of that, as some propose. The soul, spirit, breath of life, mind, consciousness is unclothed. That's how it describes it in Scripture. Naked. And it stays unclothed until the resurrection of the body. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he have an intermediate state body? He doesn't. Why not? Luke 16, 19 through 31 describes it. First Samuel 28, 12 through 19 does. Hebrews 1, 14 stated that all faithful angels are ministering spirits. Yet we know that they function in the physical realm somehow as if they have a body. Genesis 19, 1, 19, 15 through 17. They grab somebody by the hand and they move him. And yet they're spirits. Living souls without bodies, Revelation 6, 9 through 11, Matthew 17, 3, both of those portray living souls without bodies, singing, crying out for justice and having conversations, speaking words. How do you speak words when you have no vocal system? Obviously, the soul, the consciousness, the mind, the spirit has capability. So back here to uh, Patty from Missouri, where she said that her Lucy would frolic with my Abigail, right? Do dogs bark in heaven? Obviously, they have the capability, don't they? Because we're the same. Our intermediate state is the same as their intermediate state. They likewise, will they run? They, 
they will function, be recognized. They will recognize all others, all without their body. That's how it works. And that's where we stop. Okay. Oh, I should have said that uh, that we're going to take uh, our usual sabbatical off. Huh? I forgot to do that. Continue. We're still we're still I don't know what dates. I know, let's see, we've got two more lectures and then we're going to take three weeks off. That's what I know. Okay, sounds good. I think... Uh, yeah, so we got two more, and then um, and then we're going to be uh, take our, our we're going to go into an intermediate state. Yeah. Yeah. 